We're going to dive into the Word just shortly, but first let me throw this out to you. What does it mean that Jesus is the provider? What does it mean that Jesus is the provider? Well, we'll answer that today. We'll look at John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, but before we dive into that, I want to provide you with two quotes. We'll put the first quote on the screen. This quote that we're going to read is by Mr. Hitchens. Look at the first quote. I'm absolutely not for handing over the very important, depart- the very important department of our psyche to those who say, ah, God has a plan for you in mind. I have no time to waste on this planet being told what to do by those who think that God has given them instructions. Religion poisons everything. As well as a menace to civilization, it has become a threat to human survival, says Mr. Hitchens. And then we got another quote. One of the problems atheists have is the unbeliever's assertion that it is possible to determine what is right and what is wrong without God. They have a fundamental inability to concede that to be effectively absolute, a moral code needs to be beyond human power to alter. For a moral code to be effective, it must be attributed to and vested in a non-human source. It must be beyond the power of humanity to change it to suit itself. Its most powerful expression is summed up in the words, greater love have no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, Mr. Hitchens. All right, so I know what y'all thinking. Them sound like two completely different quotes and worldviews. First, Mr. Hitchens, it seems like he's this hard-hearted atheist that hates God and thinks that religion, at best, poisons everything. And then you got this second quote that I read, and it seems like Mr. Hitchens is saying, without God, there's no good. If we don't have God, if we don't have a moral law giver, no moral law can exist. So... What's the problem here? How do we get two contradictory thoughts? That Mr. Hitchens once was an atheist, did he become a Christian? Is that what happened? No, I tricked y'all. Mr. Hitchens is actually two different people. First quote that I read is actually by the late Christopher Hitchens, a very well-known atheist who would travel the world debating Christians and believers and theists with his hatred for God. And he would adamantly tell people the idea of God is foolishness. But then the second quote I read you was actually by Peter Hitchens, his younger brother. And if you caught that, Peter Hitchens is actually a believer in Jesus. And Peter is like, hey, the reality is if there's no God, there's no right or wrong. So how do you get that? How do we get two brothers raised in the same household, only separated by two years, same DNA, same parents, have completely different worldviews? How does that happen? Well, it boils down to this. One of these two men see God as the provider for all life, and the other has somehow convinced himself that a perfectly designed universe happened by chance. Now, it's no guess which one of these brothers that I would agree with. And if you're a believer today, which one of these brothers you would agree with? Everything from the smallest atom to the plants that grow from the ground to the animals that walk the earth to the birds of the air to the fish of the sea, every human being in this room and in this world is contingent on the provision of a sovereign God that sustains all things. In light of this, what I want to present before you is Jesus as the provider. And what does that mean for fallen world? 
What does it mean for a world filled with sin and death and evil that Jesus is the provider? So in order to answer that question, what I'll do, we'll read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, and I'll break the text up into three parts. First part we'll see, first point, it will be everyone desires provision. We'll see that in verses 1 through 3 and also verse 15. Second, we'll see Jesus provides for his people, and we'll see that in verses 4 through 14. And then third and lastly, we'll see Jesus is more than a provider. See that in verses 16 through 21. With that, let's dig in. Everyone desires provision. Let's look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Okay, now, let me give you some, some Bible knowledge real quick. Whenever a text in the Bible starts with a after this, or therefore, or some type of connecting phrase, you should ask, what's it connecting to? So after what? What is after this? Well, the previous context, if you jump back to the end of chapter 5, remember that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because he made himself equal with God, he healed on the Sabbath, and he was creating a huge following. And the Jewish leaders, they're angry, and they question Jesus, by what authority do you do this? And Jesus sums up his authority, and he says it in verse 45 through 47 in the previous chapter. It says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words, Jesus asks. Now, keep that in mind. We'll keep that in mind, what it means that Jesus was written by Moses. We'll keep that in mind and see what that means. But let's get back to the after this. So after this, Jesus walks to the other side of the sea, and he has this massive crowd following him. And this is part of the reason why the Jewish leaders hated Jesus. He was taken away from their authority and their following. So why are they angry? Well, it'd be the same reason why if Blockbuster had the chance, they would send a missile to the headquarters of Netflix. <laughs> now, I know I went over some of you young people's head. Y'all like, Blockbuster, what is that? So let me get a history lesson. So Blockbuster was this ancient way to watch movies. You had to physically get up off your couch, go to your car, drive about 10 minutes to a store filled with 2,000 or so DVDs and VHSs. I'm not going to explain that right now. <laughs> Stand in a line, rent this movie, and be threatened with a $30 fee if you don't bring it back on time. Then what happens? Netflix happens. And Netflix is like, hey, you know what? If you want to stay at home, you don't even have to leave your house to watch a movie. We'll fix that problem for you. Any movie you want to watch in our database, give us $10.99 a month, and you can do it by the click of a remote. And what happens to Blockbuster? Well, Blockbuster, they lose money, they lose respect, and people leave their loyalty for Blockbuster and take it to Netflix. And this is the same reason what happened with the Jewish religious leaders. They're losing power, they're losing money and affluence. Why? Because this wise man has arrived and he's bigger and better than them. And what leads Jesus to having such a great following? Well, we find it out in verse 2. It says they were following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. 
Now, it's no wonder why Jesus is gaining such a following over the Pharisees. Not only is he teaching in a way that's filled with grace and truth and one with authority, but he's also doing these miraculous signs that are like unlike anything that they've ever seen. Now, before we even jump to that, I know some of y'all who may come here and somebody might have invited you to church. You may be like Christopher Hitchens, and you're like, man, that Bible stuff in there, man. Like a lot of that stuff, I mean, it's not really miracles happening. I mean, we can explain it today because in 2019, we're scientific. You think, man, like, like Jesus probably had some medicine that not everybody else had at the time, or he had some scientific stuff that he was doing but not everybody else was privy to. But, I mean, no miracles really happened. Now, let me put a hole in that theory right there. The things that Jesus does don't even happen today. For example, Jesus healed a paralyzed man. Jesus told the man, he said, stand up and walk. And what did he do? He walked. I don't care what year it is, if it was 2,000 years ago, if it was 200 years ago, or today, if somebody walked in here right now, went to one of our paralyzed brothers or sisters and said, get up and walk, and they walked, we would freak out. Why? It don't happen. Or you hear about Jesus healing the man with blind eyes. Jesus takes the spit in the mud, and he puts it together and wipes it on his eyes, and the man sees. If someone walks in this room and tells one of our blind brothers or sisters, come here, take some, sp- maybe hold the spit, but the mud <laughs> rubs it on their eyes and they see we're going to freak out. It don't happen. The reason why it was a miracle then be the same reason it's a miracle today. This stuff does not happen. Jesus steps on the scene in power. And why is it so appealing to the masses? Well, these people, like us, they're hurting, and they're broke, and they're sick, and now a man has come to them, and he can provide for them in ways they could not have imagined. Every human being, even us in 21st century America, have a desire for provision. We have many different needs that are spiritual, emotional, physical, and everything in between. And this is why people are way more prone to accept the Jesus that's just their Savior, but not their Lord. Because everyone deep down knows that they have needs. Who would turn down someone who's willing to meet their needs? If I had a need for $1,000 to pay my rent and somebody walked up to me, said, hey, no strings attached, here's $1,000, I would take it. Why? I have a need. But there's another side to this coin. You cannot have Jesus to provide for your needs and at the same time reject him as Lord. We must take Jesus as both Lord of our lives and the provider for the bondage that is a result of sin. Don't make the same mistake that they make in verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew himself again to the mountain by himself. The mistake that they made is they wanted Jesus on their own terms. However, Jesus' true provision is not for those who would come to him half-heartedly. However, his provision is reserved for all of those that are truly his people. And this is what we do when we present the gospel. So if you're a Christian and you share the gospel with people, what do you do? Well, you talk to a non-believer and you tell them, hey, this world is broken. There's so many needs. Evil happens. Wrong happens. So you got the spiritual need. We've all broken God's law. Every person in this room has lied before. 
or you've lusted before, or you've envied before. Jesus says you could take the whole law and put it in love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, or love your neighbor as yourself. And every single person born to Adam and Eve has failed at this. We have a spiritual need, but not only the spiritual need, but even the physical need as well. We see cancer. Cancer is something that we hate. It wasn't meant to be that way. We see sickness, and we hate sickness. And we tell people, hey, we follow a God that surpasses all these things. We serve a Jesus that has fixed and will fix everything that is broken and meet our needs. And we share the gospel. We tell people to repent and believe in Jesus. And this is what we'll see in the next following verses, 4 through 14. We'll see Jesus particularly provides for his people. Jesus provides for his people. Let's look at verses 4 through 14. I'll just read verses 4 through 6. Now in the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So we're about to see this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, but I want you to understand the context in which he's doing it. Many times people will read about a miracle that Jesus performs, and they think he's just doing it off the cuff. No, Jesus is much more thoughtful than that. Jesus has a purpose to even the miraculous things that he's doing. He's saying more than what meets the eye. And so what's Jesus thinking? What John tells us in the beginning of verse 4. He says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Every Jewish person during this time knew just how big of a deal it was to celebrate the Passover. It would compare to a national holiday for us, like Thanksgiving or Christmas. Here, let me paint this picture for you. Imagine this year, this is what I want you to do. Try it this year to ignore Thanksgiving and Christmas. I know we got some kids in the room today, so this is what I want you to do, parents, for Christmas. December rolls around. I don't want any lights up. I don't want any Christmas curls, any Christmas trees, any Christmas songs. I don't want any gifts under the tree. And see how crazy your kids go. <laughs> They're like, Mom, Dad, what are you doing? It's supposed to be Christmas time. I know it's about Jesus, but I also want my gifts. What are we doing? They're going to freak out. Why? It's Christmas. We have traditions. But kids, I'm not going to leave you there. This is how you get your parents back. Next year, when Thanksgiving comes around, all your aunts and uncles, they're going to come over to the house and they're bringing all these lavish meals, all this food that looks really hearty and good and probably unhealthy. They're going to bring all this. So this is what I want you to do. Ten minutes before it's time to eat, hide all the food. <laughs> and we're going to see your parents respond the same way you did on Christmas. We're all big kids. This is what's going to happen. Why? Because the Passover was huge to them. For the Jews, it was meant to bring to remembrance when God delivered his people from the land of Egypt by sending a death angel to strike down any firstborn that did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And if you did not have it, the angel, if you did have the blood on your post, the angel would pass over your home and you'd be safe because of the blood of the lamb. So Jesus is about to take this crowd and do a miracle that should bring to remembrance something that Israel should know. I think this is what it means by Jesus saying he's testing Philip. Jesus knew he would feed the crowd, but he asked his disciples to see if they believed that he could. This wasn't meant to be this blind faith for the disciples. I mean, if the disciples remembered the word of God and if they remembered the Passover, they should also remember the 40 years in the wilderness. 
What happens in the 40, 40 years of the wilderness where God comes and he brings water from a, walk, a rock and he brings bread from heaven? Philip should have passed his test with flying colors. He should have said, Lord, I know you can feed this crowd even when it looks impossible because God has done it in the past and he can do it today. How many times have we been like the disciples so quick to forget how God has worked in the past? If y'all like me, I remember those times where I prayed. I'm like, God, if you don't come through in this situation, it's going to go bad. I need you to come, God. I need you to get me out of here. I need you to protect me. And if you don't, I'm lost and I'm hopeless. And then God came and he showed up and he showed out. I remember those times. I'm sure you remember those times. But what happens right after that? Well, fast forward a month or so, something else happens. And what are you doing? You're freaking out again. You're like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. God said, I've been there then and I'm here now. Why do you forget? And this is what happens with the disciples. They forget who God is and what he's done in the past. And the psalmist says, why does this happen? Where our hearts are prone to wonder, prone to leave the God that we love. How often do we forget that Jesus provides for his people? So Philip fails the test, and he's like, Jesus, where are we going to get enough food to feed these people? 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So cultural context, in their day, one denarius would have been about a day's labor for the average worker. So 200 denarii would have been enough food to feed a family for about eight months. And Philip is like, Jesus, not even with that will we be able to give this whole crowd crumbs. Why does Philip say that? Well, it was 5,000 men there, but in the synoptic gospels, what they tell us, they say that's 5,000 men, not including women or children. So that's meaning about probably 20,000 people, including men, women, and children. And Philip is like, what are we going to do even if we had 200 denarii? That wouldn't be enough to give these people crumbs. So what's Jesus going to do? How's he going to feed so many people? I mean, he could do what God's done before, and he could make manna fall from the sky. I mean, that's not outside of his power. He could do that. But what is Jesus going to do? Instead, Jesus wants to teach his disciples something, and he does it by using a little boy's meal. It says in verse 9, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you also remember a story in 2 Kings chapter 4 where Elijah had the same ingredients that they have here. And Elijah needs to feed 100 men, but he doesn't have enough food. And what happened? God takes the first fruits and he makes them enough for everyone. This is also a lesson for us. How many times have you said, God, he can't use my talents. He can't use me or my money or my witness because I'm not good enough. I mean, if he knew my buddy and them, like my buddy, like, like, like John, John is really, he, he's a beast, man. John kills it. He's so smart. He shares the gospel so eloquently and like, like, like God could use him, but not me. Or you're like, man, you shouldn't know my sister, like, like my sister, like she, like she's the one that God really uses. Because when she does anything, people sit there and they're in awe. But me, how can God use little old me? How could he do that? The problem with that statement is that the moment you say what God can or cannot do with you, you've put your weight on the, on the finite things and not trusted the infinite God who does whatever he pleases with whomever he pleases. And this is what Jesus does. 
Jesus takes this kid's meal, and after he first thanks his father for the provision, he proceeds to feed close to 20,000 people. Don't brush over that 20,000 people. We're not fitting 20,000 people in this sanctuary. If there's any IU basketball fans in here, you know the IU Stadium holds about 20,000 people as well. It don't matter because they keep losing, but it's okay. (laughs) 20,000 people. And not only does Jesus feed 20,000 people, but they're all full. And guess what? Not only are they all full, but there's still leftovers. Look at verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. All right, now remember when I said Jesus is always doing more than what meets the eye? Here's another example of that. Why is there 12 baskets left over? Well, to a Jew, if they seen 12 baskets left over, the number 12 brings remembrance to them. What does 12 mean in the Old Testament? What is it likely to bring their minds to? The 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is saying, I am enough to provide for the people of Israel. In verse 14, some people catch on to that, and it reads, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, that verse that they quote in verse 14, it's alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 18. When God prophesied a leader to come. I'll read Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19. You don't have to turn there. Verse 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus is the prophet that God promised to send. From Genesis to Malachi in the Old Testament, it promises this Messiah to come. In Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve sinned, we have the proto-euangelion. It's the first proclamation of the gospel. God says, I will send a seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And not only there, you go to the rest of the, you go to the, rest of the laws and Deuteronomy and Numbers, and it talks about holiness, that God's people must be holy, and they have to sacrifice blood from animals in order for God to atone for the monetary sins that they've committed. And then you go to Samuel, and what happens? Samuel talks about this coming king that will be in the line of David, and he will reign forever with justice and righteousness. Well, this is Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's the one that fits that bill of holiness. Well, we couldn't. Jesus is the promised son of David. And then you get to Isaiah, and what happens in Isaiah? Isaiah has this Messiah that's going to come, and it's going to be this suffering servant. And when he comes, he atones for the people of God. And not only does he atone for the people's sins, but he also comes and rules a kingdom with justice and righteousness. Jesus is the one to come, and he's here, and some of these people catch on to it. And what was this prophet to come and do? Well, like Moses, Jesus was going to come and provide an exodus for the people of God. I know some of y'all are like, Jesus provide an exodus. What does that mean? Let me break it down to you like this. So remember in the story of the exodus, the people of Israel were in bondage to the Egyptians. They were in slavery for several hundred years. And what happens when Moses comes, and he comes in the name of, of God, and he comes and he takes the people of Israel, and he provides them an exodus from their bondage. God defeats Pharaoh and their armies, and then he takes the people of God to safety in the promised land. 
So how is Jesus like Moses? Well, guess what? Jesus is coming, and he's going to take a people to Exodus as well. How does he do that? Remember I talked earlier about us all being sinners, us all breaking God's law? The Bible says if anyone sins, it's because they're a slave to sin. The reason people cannot stop sinning is because we're born into sin, and we continually sin because we're a child of Adam. But what does God promise? That promised Messiah come like Moses, Jesus promised for everyone who repents of their sins and trusts in him. He will no longer keep you as a slave to your sin, but he will bring you to the promised land. If you've trusted in Jesus, you've repented of your sins and believed in him, what does Jesus do? Well, he goes to the cross, he atones for our sin, and he resurrected to secure our position in God. Therefore, a Christian is no longer enslaved to sin, but better, we're enslaved to God. And this is what happens. Jesus comes like Moses, and he comes and he dies on the cross and he resurrected, and everybody with him can be assured that when they die, they will be in the promised land for eternity of eternities. This feeding of the 5,000 with bread is meant to point to something bigger than just, than, than just their momentary hunger. Jesus, as you'll see later in chapter 6, is himself the bread of life. And it is by consuming Jesus that all of our needs are met. So, I mean, if there's anybody here and you're struggling with addictions, if you're battling with, man, I want another drink, or I want another this because I can't cope with life, or if you're somebody in here and you're struggling with approval because you're like, man, I was never told enough that people love me, that they're proud of me, so now everything I do is for approval. Maybe you get up every week or every paycheck and you buy more clothes or you buy a new car or you buy all these things for your exterior because if you have those things, maybe people will think more of you. If that's you, this message should be hopeful. Why? Because Jesus says, if you're in him, he provides everything you need. You don't need to try to fix these addictions by taking those, but these addictions are not fixed because we drink or we smoke this. They're fixed because you say, man, I have something so much greater in Jesus, and I trust in him, and he meets the needs of your soul. You start seeing with a new lens, or you want approval in your life because maybe your parents didn't tell you this enough. Guess what? Jesus God the Father, you trust in him. He says, well done, my good and faithful child. You are approved. So what I want you to see is that Jesus is a provider for his people. Verses 4 through 14 show us that if you've trusted in him, Jesus will provide for you not only in this life, but the one to come. Everything you need is in him, and you can be sure of it. Why? Because Jesus provides for his people. He did it on the cross, and he did it with his resurrection. And if you're a Christian, that will be your reality now and to come. But third and final point, Jesus is more than a provider. Jesus is more than a provider. Let's look at verses 16 to 21. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. 
So let's bring this story up to the close. So after Jesus feeding this crowd, he sends the disciples off, and he sends his disciples to sea. And while they're on the sea, a, uh, on the boat, a storm comes, and it beats hard against the boat. Then out of nowhere, they see something on the sea, and it looks like a ghost. But who is it? It's Jesus. And they're scared, and they're, and they're anxious. And why are they scared? Well, in the context of the ancient Near East, the sea was one of the most uncontrollable forces of nature. So to be on a boat, to have this boat rocking and the wind coming up against it, you're scared. And not only does that happen, but now you're looking on the distance, it looks like a ghost walking on the water. And it's Jesus. In the midst of this storm, Jesus is walking calmly on top of the water, unfazed. The Gospel of Mark says this about the story. It says, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The disciples don't get it. They've seen Jesus do countless miracles. They've just seen him feed 20,000 people with two fish and five loaves, and they don't get it. They're missing the point, and they don't understand what's happening. This Jesus isn't just a prophet that provides food for people when they're hungry. Jesus is God. Job 9.8, Isaiah 43.16, Psalm 77.19, all these passages say that the one who controls the water and walks on the sea is Yahweh himself. Even when Moses opened up the Red Sea, he did it by the power of Yahweh. However, Jesus is saying, I have authority to do this on my own because my Father and I are one. So why are the disciples surprised? It's the same reason why we've seen Jesus work countless times in our lives, and yet we still don't believe that he is who he said he is. We live in a trust issue generation. We all have trust issues. It's the same reason when I think about my son, who's one years old, he also has trust issues. Pull up to a store, and I get out of the car. I got to first go to the trunk, get his stroller out, and then go back to the car and pull him out. By the time I open his door, my son is screaming bloody murder. He's like, Daddy, you forgot about me. You left me in the car. What are you doing? And I'm like, Trip, I had to get the stroller out first, bro. I got you. Or when he was a little younger, I remember my wife and I, we would have to go and feed him about four times throughout the night. And we would wake up, we'd hear him screaming crazy, and he's going off. And then me and my wife are running to the kitchen to get the milk and get the water, warm it up, make sure it's not too hot or too cold. And the whole time we're doing this, Trip is screaming, y'all forgot about me. And here's the crazy thing. I didn't fed this boy, and my wife didn't fed him 20,000 times before today, but he still think we forgot about him. And here's the funny thing, I'm talking about my son, but I'm just like my son. Just in the last week, I was talking to my wife, I'm like, babe, I'm struggling with anxiety right now. Thinking about the future and thinking about all these things, where we going to be, what we going to do, and I'm struggling with anxiety. And guess what? I'm just like my son. I got trust issues. I forget that the same God that made sure I'm here right now is the same God that will keep me to his time. God is like, my son or my daughter, don't ever get it twisted. I provide for my children. None of my children have ever went without a need being met. Even if I choose to withhold something from you, it's because I see a good that your eyes do not see because I see a greater need. 
Jesus can be trusted with our provision because he's more than a provider. Jesus is God. And the disciples miss it. They miss it this time when it's clearly before their eyes. Side note, thank God for the disciples. <laughs> because the way they put their foot in their mouth and they mess up, I'm like, there's hope for me. <laughs> there's hope for you too. Thank God he didn't get like these superhero for apostles. No, he got some flawed men and they miss it. But guess what? The time is going to come when they don't miss it. Jump to chapter 20 of John, doubting Thomas as they call him. He's like, you know what? I ain't going to believe Jesus resurrected unless I can come to him, put my finger in the holes in his hand and in his side. Then I believe him. And then what happens? He sees Jesus face to face and Jesus like keep that same energy. Thomas puts his fingers in his side and in his hands. And what does he do? He falls down and says, my Lord and my God. These miracles are meant to point people to God. This is why John says in chapter 20, I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let me bring this together. Let me bring this to a close. In these 21 verses, we see that everyone desires provision. Secondly, we see that true provision from God comes primarily for his people. And then finally, we see the source of Jesus' provision is based in him being God Almighty. Now, if you don't know Jesus today, if you're like Christopher Hitchens and you're like, man, I'm an atheist, but my mom or my sister or my cousin, they've invited me here. They've been asking a thousand times. I just came to please them. This message is for you. The signs in the New Testament that we see is meant for you. Like Christopher Hitchens, no matter if you deny God with your mouth, every single one of us must see Jesus face to face one day. If God has provided you with 20, 30, 40, 60, 70 years of oxygen on his earth and you deny him, the only thing left for God to provide is his judgment. And this is why as Christians, we share the gospel. We say, why would you want judgment? Why would you want him to provide you that when he provides so much more? This Jesus that we're talking about, that we preach about, this Jesus, he comes and he defeats our ultimate enemy, which is our sin and death. This Jesus comes and he resurrected so all of us, we don't have to deal with the pressures and the the pain of cancer or sickness or disease because when he comes back, We will be resurrected for all eternity. No more tears, no more pain, no more evil, no more hurt. So we plead, come to him. And if you know Jesus today, you're a believer, but right now, some of the stuff I've said, it's touched you and you're like, I'm struggling, Jeff. I'm struggling to believe these things. I'm struggling to see that. My exhortation to you would be remember God's faithfulness. Open the scriptures and see countless times where God was true to his word. He promised that everything we need for a life of godliness, we have that in him. Even when you want something to change and he doesn't, he has a greater plan. Even the ugly stuff that we go through, God says, I'm using it for your good to make you look more like Jesus. Trust him and his faithfulness. John 6, verses 1 through 21 tells us that Jesus is enough. 
Everything we need is provided in him. My hope today is that your hearts will be comforted no matter what you're going through, who you are, that when you trust Jesus, know that the provider, the God that you serve, he will meet every need that he sees fit in his son, Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your goodness. God, I thank you that you would be so gracious to send your son to take us from a bondage in our sin and bring us to a right relationship with you. God, as we anticipate the day when the resurrection happens and we will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth, which is the new promised land, we'll see you face to face and we'll trust you completely with no doubting. We anticipate that and we hope for that. I pray for my brothers and sisters today that they will be comforted with this truth, that their hearts would draw closer unto yours, and even those that do not know you, you would awaken in them a true knowledge of who you are. God, you were faithful then, you're faithful now, and you will be faithful to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.